freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode number 255 of Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. I am one of your hosts, Cheryl Todd. And I'm the other guy, Dan Todd. Our theme today is mental health. The Other Pandemic, mm-hmm. and our guest is Jake Whiskerson. Jake is a co-founder, co-owner, and chief clinical officer at Zephyr Wellness, a mental health outpatient practice in Northern Nevada. Jake is also the part of Walk the Talk America, a nonprofit organization dedicated to making positive change in relationship to mental health and firearms awareness. Through organizing a profound team of experts from different fields, and all walks of life, unbiased by politics, media, or personal prejudice. Absolutely. Welcome back to the show, Jake. Hello. Good to see you guys' faces again. I'm really happy to be on. Um, I understand you talked to Mike Sedini a while back about uh, similar things, and uh, now I get to just spend time on mental health stuff. Uh, so I'm, I'm super excited about that. Me too. I love when I have you both on together, but then to be able to, you know, have uninterrupted time with both of you separately, this is beautiful for me. Yeah, with the COVID and all that, I imagine you're a pretty pretty busy guy right now, right? We are. Um, back in back in March when everything went sideways, our business, like every business, took a hit because everybody was on their heels trying to figure out things and uh, logistics in and of themselves just interfered. Uh, but then. Uh, we figured out how to do telehealth. So Zephyr Wellness is 100% telehealth now. We still have not returned to the um, to the in-person sessions, and that's not out of any sort of irrational fear. It's more about we don't want to throw any more variables in the lives of our clients about whether or not they are supposed to log in or show up in person. And school just started. Uh, we don't want to interfere with school schedules and all the moving parts that have you know that have to do with that. Um, but once we figured that out, and we did a little bit of social media marketing about what telehealth is and we tried to demystify it. Um, we popped right back up to pre COVID, uh, volume pretty quickly. Some people were a little skittish about doing therapy through the computer screen, which is completely normal and understandable. Um, but then I think as we all settled in and realized this wasn't going away anytime soon, people, our, our clients really were like, yeah, you know what, this, I, I really still need to continue getting some services. Um, and I trust that it's going to be done effectively and ethically. And uh, lo and behold, it has. And so we're, everybody's comfortable right now. We're, we're comfortable working from home. Uh, our clinicians go to the office sometimes if they want a you know, semblance of a regular workday, but the client's 
uh, are not coming to the office and they seem to be fine with it. So um, it did throw us for a loop a little bit, but demand now is higher than it ever has been. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a minute. Mm, well, I've sure. never had therapy. Not that I don't need it, but um, you <laughs> know, didn't thinking, about didn't it, thinking, I get, <laughs> thinking about it now, it seems to me like I would be more relaxed doing it virtual. Yeah. Well, people are afraid of being recorded, I think is the main thing, right? That's that, you know, that is part of it. Um, smaller part than you probably would, would assume though. Um, I think, so to Dan's point there, we've actually experienced, uh, quite a, an array of folks who have said exactly that, but we had some research prior to that that suggested it. So in Nevada, and actually, and I believe in all 50 states now, telehealth is required to be covered by insurance. So they can't deny you just because you're getting your service through a computer screen rather than walking into the office. Um, but the justification for it was that we had a significant body of research that suggests that telehealth is not only comparable to, and this isn't just telemental health, this is telemedicine across the board, mm-hmm. comparable it's not only comparable to in-person services, but in some cases it actually outperforms for that very reason that people are more comfortable at home or they are on the road. They are living in remote areas. Um, it just, it, it also for, for like the younger generations these days, they're used to interacting on a screen. Um, that's, that's the norm now. And so mm-hmm. it's, I don't like it and I can get more into that too, as far as, you know, personal interconnectivity and how it's required by our species to, to be healthy. But we are seeing a, a lot of people who are embracing it, but moreover, the clinicians are the ones who had to turn their heads around the corner because for a long time, we just regarded this modality as very suspicious and untrustworthy. And for, for no reason other than we just kind of don't like technology as a, as a group. Um, but it's not, it's not so much the being recorded, it's the being hacked. And, um, and that's, and that, and since we put that to bed with encrypted software and, you know, making sure you have a zoom, uh, password. And then if you're in a waiting area, the, the clinician knows exactly who's in there and they, they don't just let anybody in. Uh, there's all sorts of protections that they keep that from happening. We haven't had it happen in the almost six months we've been doing it. So it's, oh, it's, we're safe. Yeah, that's good. That's great information for anybody out there that's thinking about it, you know, listening. But um, so one of the questions I wanted to, to ask you is that nationwide, Jake, we're seeing reports of serious decline in mental health and well-being. And the president has even regularly addressed his concerns about these issues on his daily COVID press conferences. As a mental health professional, can you just kind of give us a snapshot about you know, where, where we are, like we're sitting in the studio on Wednesday, September 9th, 2020, COVID's still a thing. There's political unrest, there's civil unrest, there's uncertainty about a big election coming up. What is this doing to people's mental health? Uh, It's not good um, for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think if I may opine a little bit before getting into the statistics and we do have, this isn't just anecdotal. This isn't just people seeing stuff and being like, well, I feel more stressed than normal. We have it quantified and I'll get to that in a second. But, um, my, my personal disappointment with what's going on right now is that we have this overarching narrative in our country, uh, broadly nationally, but also down into the the, the regional and county and city levels as well is there's one thing discussed and it's COVID-19 and all its symptoms and fallout. 
And it's like, we've just chucked all other negative public health outcomes out the window. And I am beside myself in disappointment and criticism of our electeds for doing that because it's to, to turn, to turn a blind eye to things like mental wellness, domestic violence, suicide, um, and all of the physiological effects that fall out from those things, all for this one virus, is not only very disingenuous and intellectually dishonest, I think it borders on pernicious and sinister. Mm. Uh, it's, it, it almost makes me go, what is, what is the point? What, what, a, what agenda is being pushed that I'm somehow missing? Because it doesn't make any sense at all. It's like everything that was a was discussed as being important up to the takeover of COVID has just been tossed out the window now. And so we've got, we've got all sorts of issues facing us, not, not even to get into economic and, um, you know, family systems stuff, but just the, just the quantifiable public health problems, nothing's, nothing's being discussed except COVID. And it's like, well, what are we trading here? We're, we're trading out all these other things that used to be to matter like exercise <laughs> and togetherness uh, and cohesion for like running scared of this virus. And there's no, there's no balanced conversation. So that's massively disappointing to me to see our, our public health leaders not even paying heed to that, except to say something along the lines of, yep, it's a problem. It's like, well, uh, yeah, you're kind of in charge of solving it too, because that's why you're there. So that's that's disappointing, and it's very distressing. But that aside, mm-hmm. um, like I said, this is not this is not just speculation now. So if I go into the CDC, actually, and I think I may have emailed this to you, Cheryl. Um, the CDC has a table of mm-hmm. survey data. They 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 spot check um, households across the country uh, on a rolling. Uh, weekly basis. And so you can see from January to present, there was a break between July 22 and August 18. So they took a month off basically, but then resumed on August 19 through 31. And those are the most recent data. But what we've seen here, and I'll just pick something at random, you got anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, and then symptoms of both. So I just go to symptoms of both because it gives us the biggest picture. And they disaggregate it by age, by gender, by race, by state, and in the 18 to 29 age group for the, the month ended, you know, the, the, the survey ended July 21st, we had 53% of our 18 to 29 year olds reporting symptoms of both anxiety, of either anxiety or depression. Mm. Uh, the previous week was 55%. The previous week to that, so July, the entire month of July was 50, over 50%. That's half of our young adults struggling with anxiety or depression. Uh, we go up in age, 30 to 39 age group is 46, 47%, 40 to 49 is 44%, um, 50 to 59 is 40%. I mean, you're talking basically half the country here. Um, now, what does that mean? Well, compare it to a year ago, same time frame, one year ago, adults aged 18 and over had symptoms of anxiety disorder, of the time, 6.6% of the time they had depressive and 11% they had either. So you compare 11 to 55. One year, 
one year difference. We are five times higher now. And, and depending on de demographic, it's either it's between four and five. We have quadrupled or quintupled the number of self-reported anxiety and depressive symptoms because of this lockdown. And it's, and I'm not, I'm not going to mince words. The pandemic didn't cause this. COVID did not cause this. Our government response to separate people caused this. And I can go to the graph, which shows over time, because they started this thing in uh, March, actually, not, not January, but March. And if you go to the graph, you can want, and we're on radio now, and I know people can't see this. And I'll give the website in the show notes. But you can see where the spike goes up in March, and then it drops a little bit in May and goes back up again in June and July. Now, what happened in May? Phase one. We came out of the full lockdown and started interacting again. And what happened in June, July? Regression. We, we started shutting down bars and churches and, and all the, the places that we go for our engagement and human connectivity. And what happened to our anxious and depressive symptoms? Went, started climbing again. It, it's plain as day to me, working in this field, what's happening. And what's happening is when you isolate people from one another in a species like ours that requires interconnectivity to survive and be healthy, you're going to get negative public health outcomes. And so mm. what, we don't have clear numbers yet on suicide rate. We do have some on domestic violence and child abuse, and those are skyrocketing. Uh, mm -hmm. we, know, we know this. What's causing it? You're forcing people to be at home. So we're totally, we're totally throwing out the window those considerations all for this one virus that okay maybe it maybe it's maybe it's deadly to some people but it's deadly to other people if we do this other thing so where's the where's the middle ground where's the balance and that was part of my my soliloquy in the beginning where i was very frustrated at the leadership or lack thereof from our from our public health people so what's our snapshot where are we we're not in a good spot we're four times to five times worse than we are a year ago when it comes to our mental wellness um so yeah, that's that's the short answer. <laughs> or I'm sorry, the long answer to your short question. Jake, could I this anxiety? What what are the effects of that? I mean, what does that cause people? Uh, what do you see when somebody has anxiety? So a couple of different ways to look at this. One is um, what are the symptoms? Symptoms of anxiety include things like um, restlessness, um, lack of sleep, um, tension, hypervigilance. You know, you're looking around, overstudying things, overthinking. Um, anxiety can come from a number of places, uh, for people who struggle with anxiety and they had a negative childhood upbringing, it could be trauma related. All right. So you got, uh, memories of, uh, poor events, you know, uh, crappy encounters rolling around in your head and it makes you, it makes you on edge and keyed up in present day, even though you're maybe not being abused or neglected like you were in childhood. These days, the anxieties that we're seeing because of this massive uptick have to do with things that are just simply not in people's control and they would like them to be, or they previously were. So I used to be able to control where I worked out, went to the gym, went to church, ate my dinner with my family. And now I don't, I've lost that control. And so losing a sense of control can absolutely uh, spike somebody's anxiety and their depression. And I'll talk about depression in a minute and how they're different. But um, the, I think that the other thing that we got to consider too is it's not just a mental issue in your head. You're like, okay, I'm worried and I'm, I, anxiety chiefly is based in fear, by the way. And fear is one of those 10 core emotions that I talk about regularly. 
Um, and fear does something. It's an, it's adaptive to us, just like our, all our, all our emotions are. It tells us how to adapt to the environment. Fear says that there's a threat or a danger present. Usually that threat or a danger is something physical, like a, like a, a snake that's about to strike your ankle or a, a bear that's stalking you or something like that, right? Well, fears can also be rooted in um, ideology and belief systems. Uh, if, I'm a, if I don't know that I'll be okay, if I change my mind about something, I can be scared of the new idea that's coming. That's, that's real. That's, that's fear-based. Uh, and that can create anxiety too. If somebody's challenging your beliefs and making you look in a no, new direction, that can be very scary. So part of this loss of control has to do with unknown. And the unknown is very scary simply because it's not predictable. And in a country, in a society like ours, that's driven largely by science and certainty. We like to know things. We like to have guarantees on boxes. We like to have blueprints and maps. Uh, not knowing can be very distressing because we, we're not okay not knowing. And that's something that I try to do in my practice is I try to help people be okay with not knowing, be at peace with uncertainty and embracing mystery. And those, those of you who may be listening, who have a, a religious tilt of some, some sort or another, uh, all, all spirituality has to do with not knowing, being okay with not knowing, right? So it's not like this is a completely foreign concept. It's not like it, it, it only belongs in the Orient, right? Um, Westerners can certainly learn to embrace mystery and, and have done so in different ways. Now it's just a matter of being okay with not being able to go to your restaurant, being okay with not being able to go to the gym, being okay with, you know, all these things that have been taken away from us. So that's a, that's a large part of what anxiety does, but here's what else anxiety does. It works on a cellular level in our bodies. And what happens when we, when we worry, when we have a fear response to something, our brains excrete different types of chemicals, uh, adrenaline, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, uh, and, and what that does is it puts us into like a fight, flight, or freeze response. In other words, it helps us negotiate crises. It helps us protect ourselves. And what we're experiencing now is this ongoing pattern of crisis where it's just, we're being bombarded either through the news media, social media, current events. I mean, I'm in Nevada right now and there's wildfires burning all up and down California. And we just literally yesterday was the first day where we didn't have smoke in our Valley of Reno and Sparks for three and a half weeks, three and a half straight weeks of just choking, disgusting, unhealthy smoke. Um, so that's, that creates consternation and worry as well. So if our brains are constantly pumping out these chemicals, what they do is they start to erode our bodies physiologically at a cellular level. If we stay in that, in that fight or flight for too long. And we have some other research that suggests that in childhood, if you, if you're raised in a, in a chaotic turbulent childhood upbringing, and you're constantly in fight or flight all the time, you actually end up with a shorter life expectancy because it's eroded your body's natural ability to do things like ward off infection, heal itself. Um, literally your cells break down because cortisol, the, the stress hormone that's chiefly responsible for your response to those environmental stimuli um, and adrenaline, those two things are not supposed to be in your body for, for long periods of time. They're supposed to dump do their job and then flush out. And the way you flush them out is exercise. Typically drink lots of water, move your body, get, get your blood flowing. Um, so if you're constantly in fight or flight, you're constantly having stress and hormones in your body. Um, you're going to end up deteriorating. And over the last six months that we've been in this constant crisis state, we're seeing more negative health outcomes 
physiologically. People are getting sick. They're not being able to work out because the gyms are closed. Um, they're, they're under stress anyway, because it's like, what, what do I have to do? I have to wear a mask. And I recently talked to a colleague. Um, I have a podcast called Noggin Notes that deals with mental health stuff. Um, you know, humble plug for that. Um, but I talked to a colleague who gave me a really cool phrase that I'd never considered before. And it's called decision fatigue. And the idea mm. we're making mm -hmm. too many micro decisions now that we never had to, to make anymore. So for example, if you go pull up for gas, you know, you just get out of your car, you swipe your card, pump the gas. Now it's like, do I have to wear a mask? Do I have to wipe the, the pump down? Um, who's watching me? <laughs> like, you know, are the, are the mask police going to judge me? Um, it, it's, and that, that operates in different varieties too. And we'll get into the work, uh, working from home, uh, hybrid school thing too. But the point is our brains aren't designed to sustain this level of, of chaotic distress for as long as we have. And it's very, very challenging. I wish we could have you on for like five hours because you have just described <laughs> me to a T. I, I, I didn't know this about me, yeah. but you know, the reason I asked you that is because I've been seeing a lot of people that are very angry mm, that I agitated. haven't seen before. Just so many, mm -hmm. but I also, you know, what you just said, it's kind of labeling me in a way. And it's like, there is too many minor decisions you have to make. And I don't have the comfort of sitting in my restaurant, eating and thinking about what I'm going to do for the rest of the day, those kind of things. And wow, I'm so sorry, Cheryl. Take it. <laughs> no, it's, it's joy sucking, right? It just yeah, it is. The, the joy out of your life and the things that you used to be able to do to have your little mini breaks. Like he loved to, you know, just go have breakfast by himself and think his thoughts and plan his day. Now I can't do that. Right. Well, it seems like a little thing, but it's not a little thing. And some other stuff that's been, that's been taken from us like sports, right? That was, that was one of our outlets. Now we've got some sports back in some form or another, um, but then we don't have other sports back and there's people who's, lives and livelihoods hinge on that like college athletes who are amateurs who need the grant and aid to go to school and and like there's all these other stresses about that too um but even now that we've got sports back we've got messaging that i, I don't really care what you think about it the point is like when you've got black lives matter being pumped into your consciousness through through watching basketball baseball football um it doesn't matter what your opinion is of the movement the organization the people behind it the point is you're now being you're forced to be aware of something that you probably just didn't tune in for, right? It's like, right. oh man, social injustice. Oh man, police brutality, right? Like whether or not you're sick of it or whether or not you're active, activated to go do something to make change, your brain is still responding. Yes. And, and that's not something that we were previously uh, having to deal with when we turned in our tuned in on the baseball or football games. He was like, Oh, breast cancer awareness month. They're all wearing pink. It's like, Oh, that's cool. I, now I'm aware to something that I normally wouldn't have crossed my consciousness in the realm of watching sports on TV. But now it's all the time, constantly, every time you turn it on, like there is no escape. Um, it, it's, that's not healthy. It's just, it's, it's just not, not healthy. It's so not. Um, and really that leads us right to the next question that I had is that we've heard uh, that during the height of the pandemic, there was a shortage of medical workers in different places across the nation. But I haven't heard anyone talk about the potential for a shortage of mental health professionals. It seems likely that we haven't yet crested the top of the curve that we were just talking about. We're four to five times, you know, uh, more people experiencing anxiety and depression uh, symptoms. So what, what is going to happen in this field? What are your thoughts in this field? Are we going to actually experience 
people that are seeking help and, and there just isn't enough hours in a day for the, the mental health professionals to see everyone? Uh, short answer, yes. But I think the reason I was laughing when you started reading that was because uh, <laughs> the reason we haven't heard about the pandemic of mental health crisis is because we already had one anyway. We were already provider deficient. And yeah. I come from a little bit of a I mean, tongue-in-cheek privileged position in Nevada where we are dead last in the country in behavioral health services anyway. And we've, we've been there for three straight years. And it's only going to get worse because guess who's also dead last in unemployment, dead last in economy. <laughs> like we're because of this, we're, we're just going to get worse. So Nevada's, Nevada's not in a good spot, but nationally we didn't have enough providers to meet the demand anyway. So mm-hmm. now quadruple it. We're not quadrupling graduates to go get their licenses. So yeah, this is, this, it's going to be a big problem. And, and here's something that I've really ugly rumor that I just heard recently was insurance companies who cover these types of benefits for, you know, you pay for your premium or whatever. If you don't pay for your premium, you're on the state plan and you're on Medicaid or Medicare, right? Um, But somebody's putting money into a system that then allocates those funds to go to treatment. They didn't budget for this. And so what they're being forced to do is either cut services, which they can't do, or cut reimbursements, which they can. Um, And they'll they can't do it in the middle of a contract. That'd be a, that'd be a contract breach, but they'll just wait for the contracts to renew and then hack reimbursement rates, which if you're a company like mine that pays its clinicians very, very well, um, it would become unsustainable. So there's another crisis is the crisis of, okay, now you have the providers and they want to work, but you're not paying them enough to keep the lights on. So do we cut wages then? Uh, it, it, I mean, nightmare, absolute nightmare in the making. It, it's shocking to me that from the 1980s on that mental health has been dropped. It, it seems to be ignored by government agencies. They just seem to like forget about it. You well, see? unless you can just, uh, you know, throw a pill at it or something, you know, and that's yeah. the thing that I'm worried about is that if we don't have the all important, I believe, of course, that's what my degrees are in the all important you know, talk therapy and connecting with people and, and helping people work through their issues. Uh, what's left? Here's this pill. And then, oh, you're, that's going to make you feel funny. So then here's this other pill to counteract that. And then maybe you need this third pill. And I, I'm really nervous about that being the pathway we end up in. And one would, uh, one might conclude that that is an intentional uh, mm-hmm. direction that may be carved based on certain political influences and where money uh, does or does not exist within those political influential realms. Um, I don't like to believe that, but the fact is that if you can make it happen for your industry, you do. And mm-hmm. um, all under the auspices of help, right? We're, we're helping sure. people. Sure. But, are you, but are you problem solving or simply treating symptoms? I'm, I'm a bigger fan of solving problems. But, you know, we're, we're in an instant gratification society anyway. So it's mm-hmm. like you know, take the quick and easy, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you won't, you won't feel better in the long run, uh, but you'll feel better in the short run. And I guess that's, that's where we're headed. Wow. I don't, I don't like that's, it. It is scary stuff. So talking about walk the talk America, the work that you do with Michael Sodini, who we were mentioning earlier in the show, um, it includes bringing a greater understanding between gun communities 
and the mental health professionals that we don't have enough of, and we need more people getting out there and getting in school for that. But anyway, uh, but this implies that there is a misunderstanding between these two groups. Could you kind of talk about if there is, and if so, then what would the misunderstandings be based in? Yeah, I, th I think there is an, a misunderstanding or, or multiple misunderstandings, but I think more accurately would be to say that there's just a lack of understanding altogether. Um, my profession has tended to, the individuals within it get very comfortable in doing some particular lane or another, and then they don't tend to branch out of those lanes. So if you do eating disorders, you get really good at that and you specialize and that's, that's just what you do. Um, if you do teenagers, you're really good at teenagers and you don't tend to go down to pediatrics, you know? So, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I like the idea of having experts in the field. What I don't like is when people get rigid and inflexible in their um, cultural understandings. So for us, we, for whatever reason, uh, it's, it's an arts field, it's, it's an arts field for the most part or a soft science. Um, people in the arts tend to lean left politically. People who lean left politically tend to not be fans of guns. Um, and I say tend to, because that's clearly not the, the case in, in every instance, but when you tend to have certain leanings, you tend to have certain beliefs and those beliefs tend not to want to be changed for all the reasons I said earlier about fear, right? I don't, I don't want to let go of this belief because it means I'm empty handed and uncertain and I have to entertain some other belief I have to replace it with. So when I met Mike and I was talking about this guns and mental health thing, I basically had to reconcile that I had to come out of the closet as a gun owning clinician to my own peer colleagues and risked um, being ostracized, which mm -hmm. has happened in certain circles. And I don't really care because uh, those people are judgmental and rigid and I don't really care to be around them anyway. So the benefit though, is it's, it's helped other people sort of come out of the closet too. And um, they've said either, yeah, I, I own guns and I didn't know really how to talk about it. Or um, I come from a family full of first responders or military, and we didn't really know how to broach that either because they, there's guns associated with that. So that's been really cool. And that's what the classes that we offer are designed to do is they're, they're designed for clinicians to improve their competency about what firearms culture is. Uh, the flip side of that coin is firearms owners tend to be very, uh, and I know you get to this in a moment, but they tend to be self-reliant and there's mm -hmm. like all my problems, bootstraps, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But they also tend to be very suspicious of clinicians because of some rhetoric that's been pushed over the years about crazy guy with a gun. And it's like, well, I have a gun and I might be struggling with depression. Does that make me a crazy guy with a gun? I don't want to be labeled like that. So I just won't go help, go get help. Um, oh, and oh, by the way, red flag laws and transfer laws and you might have your rights stripped of you because the clinician picks up the bat phone to the government and turns you in or something like, which we can't do for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, so we just need to get that right out of the way. So yes, there's a misunderstanding, but there's also a lack of understanding because we mm. tend to get siloed and then we don't talk about these things. And then um, the, the misinformation gets perpetuated. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to fight that and we're doing it with courses, formalized courses uh, where people can attend and learn things and then have conversations specific to suicidal uh, uh, intervention, of course. So, uh, you know, how do you have a conversation with the parents who you're seeing for couples counseling, but they acknowledge that they have a 14 year old who's struggling with depression because he's getting bullied at school. Um, and if I'm a, if I'm a not knowing clinician, I don't know how to have a conversation about, well, do you lock up the pills? Yeah, but we also have firearms. 
oh, uh, well, I don't know anything about that. So I guess we'll just move on. Like, no, 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 no. You actually have to ask, like, where are your firearms stored? And, uh, you know, are, the, are you the guy who has guns staged, you know, all over the house unlocked because you think um, you need to be John Wick some evening? <laughs> Did you tell him about you? <laughs> Mine are all in safes, but they are scattered about the house. And I'm sure Mike, Mike probably covered this too about, you know, you should practice as hard at getting your gun out, unlocked and ready as you do putting yes. less target, right? We yes. should do that. That's just a thing. But because that whole self-reliance component, uh, yeah. we, we don't, we think we're somehow immune from needing to like be uh, safe with our firearms, not to mention like, okay, you go out for dinner and somebody does a smash and grab at your house and there's just like guns stuffed under pillows. Like, you just contributed <laughs> to the commission of a crime later on. Like, do you really want to take that chance? Let's, let's forget about all the, the safety measures with teenagers and, you know, depress. Definitely, definitely got points there. Um, so I do, I do love so much that part of walk the talk America is helping uh, clinicians better understand people that own guns and why they own them. And I, I love that, you know, in doing that, you're, you're removing some of the either perceived or real barriers that individuals would have to finding and seeking and getting the help that they, they need. Um, and demystifying some of it, all of that is so important. And the, um, I, when I came to the class that you guys held, your very first class that, that you were, you know, talking to clinicians about this whole idea, um, I was so honored to, to get a chance to be a fly on the wall in that room. Um, but you uh, were talking about, you know, if I'm sitting at home and I'm searching online for a, a clinician that does work on eating disorders, that I can find that. That's a search term. That's an actual, you know, thing on somebody's webpage that they might have, hey, I do this and this and this, and I specialize in these areas. Um, having that tab, that check mark, that search term for gun-friendly or however the phrasing would be, uh, you addressed that as important. And I agree 100%. It is so important. Has there been much movement in that area yet? Um, no. And part of that was just because we we had a lot of things just put on ice because of the whole, um, you know, lockdown stuff, but, um, we struggle with phraseology. So some of the phrasing that I've seen in psychology today, for example, which is where a lot of us have our prof professional profiles where people can find us through those search criteria is ally. So you can be a transgender ally. You can be an LGBTQ ally. You can be a, um, you know, whatever you're allied with. Right. Um, so you could be a second amendment ally, I suppose. There's also realms of competence where you can say, like uh, you can check that you're competent to treat aviation uh, personnel. And that's a very unique subset uh, demographic as I've, as I've learned, because they have unique stresses. Um, one of those stresses within the aviation community, as I understand it, is very, very unique to military, police, fire, um, emergency room docs, and then firearms owners broadly, which is if you're deemed to be under stress or otherwise mentally ill, um, there's, there's almost this linkage that says you're not, you're no longer competent to execute your job. Yeah. And so there are special considerations to be had with that type of profession. I would like to see a 
a firearms cultural competency checkbox. Um, rather than ally, which sounds like you're an advocate, you don't need to be an advocate necessarily. You need to be competent to understand and work with. And I think that's that's a more appropriate checkbox. So I have not reached out to some of those websites to um, explore getting us listed on there. I don't know why we wouldn't, because as of tw- fall of 2017, we know the numbers have skyrocketed since then. Uh, there was a Pew Research poll that came out said uh, 47-ish, it was like 46.8, so I just round up, 47% of Americans either live with somebody who owns a firearm or owns a firearm, own firearms themselves. So you're talking half of our prospective clientele are going to be gun owners or living in a home with a gun. We can't afford to be ignorant to the dynamics that surround that kind of um, hobby industry profession, if you will. So uh, that's, that's why it's so important. And we do need to get that out there. We do need to advertise it so that people can discreetly search for what they need. Um, if they, if they still have some of these, these stigmas rolling around in their heads. And I, I can talk more about the stigma too, and how that originates as well with you know, labels and diagnoses and so forth. Yeah. If I was, if I was looking for treatment and I saw that you, uh, you know, work with firearms owners, I might be a little afraid of that that well, what do you mean you work with firearms or are you gonna you have the ability to take my guns away for me you know i don't know so I, you might take you, it the other way right you, so you have to have that relationship with the person first mm. and then open up to the firearms part of it because i might be a little afraid of that that it's a trap that it's a <laughs> you know you know i don't know i've i've never asked for help Right. And so let's talk about like paranoia. Said, no, I'm kidding. Well, it could be. well <laughs> firearms owners are no, paranoid. No, I, I get it, babe. I'm no, just... t- totally, totally. And as much as I want to like, you know, reflexively reject that out of here and be like, no, 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 that's not what it is. The point is you just illustrated a very real concern. Whether or not it's got origins in legitimacy, the concern is real. And so we want to validate that and say, yeah, that's true. And that's where the work has to be done in the firearms community itself to say, no, this isn't true. This isn't a thing. I wrote an article for the WTTA website way back before I was really involved, before I was a board member, before all that stuff. It said, it's entitled, Counselors Cannot Take Your Guns. And part of it was citing law and ethic that says, I just, that's not appropriate. Um, but we got, we actually got a pushback that said, actually, you can, at least in New Jersey, because the red flag law says any person in New Jersey, most of the red flag laws that aren't New Jersey say um, law enforcement or family member can, can ask for the, the petition for the extreme risk protection order. So technically in New Jersey, a counselor could ask a judge to remove your firearms. You'd lose your license because that's so far out of bounds from our ethics, which are usually adopted into law, that it would, it would just not happen. But we need to get that message out. And we're not good at that because I've just got done saying that we all just hover in our little silos and don't interact. So of course we're not interacting with gun owners either. So the more conversations, more podcasts, right? (laughs) Um, The more conversations we can have that say, no, absolutely not. That's not a thing. What it means is I'm sensitive to your cultural dynamics that you tend to be a little suspicious. You tend to want to solve your own problems. Um, You may have been burned in the past. Um, I've, if I can demonstrate that I've taken some coursework or at least I'm, I'm savvy to the, to the dynamics, then maybe you're more likely to come in because what's the alternative. And I'm not going to change everybody's mind. I get that. There's the, you know, probably for my cold dead hands guys out there too, that are like, they'll never have their minds changed about it. 
And what's the alternative though? You stay sick, your body or your relationships deteriorate, or at maximum you take your own life with said firearm, like, as opposed to like being suspicious of the counselor. I'm like, that's kind of a non-starter for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I just look at, and I don't know how to say this, but if I, you know, I haven't seeked help, but if I were to seek help, I would be very nervous of whoever I was going to go see. Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of want to do an interview with that person just to find out about that person because I'm getting ready to tell you everything, my my dark secrets, everything. And I just want to know a little more about you. And when I find out more about you, I'm probably going to get that information that you're here yeah. to help. You're not here to control, confiscate, that kind of thing. So it, it's hard, you know. That's- it, that's, a, that's, that's one of the stigmas we battle um, is that everybody wants the, and it's, and it's not made any easier by people in our profession who offer the free 15 minute consultation. That's, mm. that's the dumbest shit. Sorry. <laughs> it, I agree. You can just press the button. It, it doesn't help because it, it, it says, it says that I'm so untrustworthy by nature that you need to interview me first. And what we need to get out is a message that says, irrespective of where I come from, my training is good enough that you can trust me. Uh, we don't do that in any other field. We don't go to the dentist and be like, hey, so before we go for the root canal, I want to make sure that your cleanings are good. Like, we don't do that. We don't go to the auto mechanic and be like, before you replace my engine, which I know needs replacing, can you, can you make sure that you're good at, re- at replacing brake pads? No, we don't, we, don't test, we don't do the litmus test for anybody else. It's us. We're the, and we perpetuate the stigma by doing things in school, like telling our uh, professors, tell students in grad school, if you see a client in public, um, turn your shopping cart and go down the other aisle because you're protecting their confidentiality. No, you're advancing stigma. You're saying it's not okay to go seek help. It's saying that they're weird. There's something wrong with them. They're not a neighbor and a human being anymore. You like, I just, it blows my mind. And that's, that's on us. We need to get out there and say, Hey, what would it take in a profile? Cause all our profiles kind of sound generic too. It's like, I believe in the eternal power of a human to help themselves. And it's like, okay, next, next, next. Like, how can we, advertise better so that you know you are comfortable through a through a biogra- biography you know jake you're doing it right now i mean if i decided i need help just listening to you talk i'm not necessarily saying an interview but hearing you talk that i can personally relate to some of the things you're saying mm-hmm. so now i feel comfortable cheryl did have me go to a week-long uh, program mm-hmm. with the uh, townsend cloud and townsend. Cl- cloud townsend and i went in there you know open because cheryl had been kind of telling me you're going to do it really seriously that I needed help. I, and I, and at the time I was extremely nervous. Mm -hmm. It took about 30 seconds for me to just completely unload. And just relax into the process. Because of talking to them, you know? And so, you know, there's people out there that don't even know they need help that need help. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that know they need help. They're afraid. So just listening to people like you right now, that's the ticket right there. I don't think you can put it on a billboard and I don't think you can put it on a website. You've got to get out there. You know, people have got to hear you. So it's a good ambassador. A lot of it's personal that's testimony me. too. Yeah. Yeah. Personal testimony helps when, you know, neighbors are gathered around at the barbecue and they're like, yeah, so I was, you know, scratching their heads and kicking the, the, the grass. And they're like, I, I was, uh, I was a little afraid to go into counseling, but you know what? It was awesome. Um, and it feels good. It feels good to get that junk off your chest. You know what I mean? Like more podcasts. Yes, more podcasts. (laughs) So you guys really set me up for my next question beautifully again, because uh, those of us who do own guns are very often 
very often self-reliant minded. Fix it myself. Fix it myself. You want something done right, do it yourself, right? Um, and sometimes we know when we need help, but other times we might just, you know, we just don't quite feel ourselves. So how can we gauge that? How do we know when, especially in a time like right now, where we are having like, you know, more anxiety, not with it, just within ourselves, but all around us, we do have this decision fatigue. I love that phrase. I'm going to use that phrase. Um, our meter just might even be broken. We might need mm -hmm. help more um, immediate than we realize. Uh, how do we gauge that, Jake? Uh, so there's three things there that I think I want to tackle. Um, well, four, I want to give credit to Alex Escabel for that phrase, decision fatigue. But um, I think the first one is that we, we have to be self-aware enough to know that we need some assistance, right? And that requires practice. I did not get to the place of self-awareness that I am now. And I'm not fully self-aware. Nobody can ever be fully self-aware because if you are, then you would be God. And like, <laughs> I'm never going to be God. So, um, but you can keep working at it and you can keep improving. But if you, if you get to the point of being self-aware enough to go, Ooh, I'm feeling this thing that I didn't like over the last several years, um, whether it be negativity or depression or anxiety or, uh, just your mood escalating the, into a dangerous place, you can go, oh, I can do something to stop it now, right? And that gets, so we got to work on our self-awareness. We got to be honest with ourselves. We can't be, we can't continue to pretend distresses aren't existing and that we're not, um, we're not ill, right? Uh, the second thing though, is that when we, when we ask for help, sometimes the help is uh, self-manifested. It's going to sound very bizarre to have a, a, a professional who makes his money off of helping people professionally say the following, but I'm going to because I want to work myself out of a job. People are capable of solving their own problems. So to the self-reliance component, I think it's a good thing. Most of the time when I'm working with individuals who are really, really struggling, they come from chronic chaos or, you know, um, abuse and neglect, and they, they've had their self-efficacy, self their self-worth basically stolen from them. I have to help teach them that they can be self-reliant. I have to teach them that their self-talk needs to change to something like I'm no good to I am good, right? And that's very, very challenging for people who've been practicing it the other way for years. So the idea is that these services, if you, if you level up to professional service that's supposed to be time limited, we should not be in therapy in perpetuity. It is unethical. It's illegal in some cases. Um, but it also, it, it, it creates a dependence that is not necessary or good. Um, I should not be helping you solve your problems all the time. You should learn to solve them on your own because uh, lest we get too arrogant about this whole mental health thing, uh, our profession didn't exist about 150 years ago. So um, somehow humanity made it that far without people like me uh, thinking that we're the be all end all. So we do want to teach people to be self-reliant. So actually firearms owners being of the self-reliant type actually serves as an advantage. Cause all we got to do is just like leverage that a little bit and be like, you got this. And then they're like, yeah, I guess I do. Um, so don't, don't go into therapy thinking that you're in, like, once you, I think that's another perceived barrier to care too. It's like, well, once I engage, I have to be there for 12 sessions or whatever. It's like, mm, no, uh, not, not if, if, not if you're working hard and the clinician's good. So, um, the third one is 
we need to change the narrative from seeking help is weakness. It's not, it's vulnerability. It's not weak. And if we're comparing weak versus strong, being able to be vulnerable, receive feedback, knowing that you can come out of it and then be strong again actually is a real strength. So we need to train people who are self-reliant, quote unquote, to be vulnerable and know that vulnerability, although it invites risk, risk of what? Pain usually, because you can get let down, you can get hurt. Um, and who wants more pain, right? Vulnerability also opens up the opportunity for great success, joy, happiness, um, triumph, things that you can point to that you can go, I was there and now I'm here and I'm proud of that. You couldn't have done that without being vulnerable enough to receive some feedback, right? Some assistance. Even if that assistance is in the form of like, oh, I'm down and out, I'm out of my job. Can, you, can I get a loan from my parents at the age of 40? You're like, well, yeah, that's, that's being vulnerable. That's asking for help. That's not weakness. That's, that's you, you needed, you needed assistance and, and a human being came along and assisted you. Um, there's no, there's no judgment there. There's no power differential. So, um, being able to just receive that feedback, receive assistance and move forward. We need to start changing that narrative and get out of the mindset of like, I don't want to be perceived as weak. And I know that people still talk like that. Football coaches talk like that. Drill sergeants talk like that. And we need to just purge that from our vocabulary. And honestly, like if we're talking about weakness, it's okay to be weak. Weak's a natural state of being. Like we get strong from our weakness. We work on it, right? We go to the gym, we lift more weights to get the weak muscle stronger again. That's, that's what physical therapy does. So being emotionally weak, well, let's get emotionally strong, okay? So change the narrative from weak to vulnerable, improve the weaknesses and turn them into strengths and know that it's all time limited uh, so that eventually you can solve your own problems uh, I think is, is where we, we need to go with that. That's beautifully said. And, you know, when I'm listening to you talk about the, the idea of being weak, I'm thinking, and especially when you use the, the gym analogy, it's really kind of a relative thing, right? Because if you're always building more and more strength, then yesterday you were more weak than you are today. So you weren't pitiful yesterday. Right. You just are stronger today. I, I, I can think about that. Yeah. And there's a comparison thing too, right? We want to avoid comparisons, but we also can't avoid them because that's just mm -hmm. naturally how we compete. So um, if you're comparing yourself to somebody who's got a different life experience, set of circumstances, talents, abilities, whatever, and you're never going to get there, that's can, that can be very disappointing. And, and then that can lead to depression. Um, so we want to get out of the idea that we're com comparing ourselves to others and their strengths. We need our strengths, right? Focus on self. Um, how can I get better tomorrow than I was today? And without judging myself for being where I am today, because uh, that's another uh, hang up a lot of people have too, is like, oh, I shouldn't be here. It's like, well, stop shooting on yourself. I did a YouTube video on stop shooting on yourself. So you can <laughs> check that out. I love that. Stop shooting I, on yourself. <laughs> I did promise a, a definition of uh, depression compared to anxiety. And here it is. Yeah, so I got yeah. this from a good friend and mentor, Christian Conti. Uh, look him up at dr. Dr. Christian Conti, C-O-N-T-E dot com. He's got a fabulous YouTube channel full of information. But uh, one time he taught us in, in school, he says, uh, anxiety is when you fixate your thoughts. So like, not just reflect, but fixate your thoughts on something in the future that you can't do anything about because it's not here yet. And so you get to worried about it, right? And that could be a number of things. Um, and depression is when you fixate your thoughts on something in the past that you can't do anything about because it it's already done. Mm. 
the balance there then is when you, you want to be present centered, you want to be in the moment wherever you are. And that's not to say that we all just become hippies and throw caution to the wind and be like, whatever happens, happens, man. I don't even care about my past. No, we, we want to mindfully reflect on our past so that we improve from our mistakes and we celebrate our successes. And we also want to mindfully plan for the future, you know, retirement and so forth. Um, but we don't want to live there because check this out. When we're living there, when we're fixating our thoughts there, then we end up missing today, which gives us more reason to be distressed. And so there creates the stacking effect. And if we can just be in the moment and control what, how much time we spend on one side or the other of anxiety or depression, like future or past, then we can return. So the idea here is that I'm in charge of where, where my thoughts go. I can direct them. I can control my attention and how much time I spend on something. Jake, did you, um, why are you looking at me? Did Cheryl talk to you about me? Because you just no. named it. I, I just realized that I am anxiety future, thinking about the future. What can I do to get this thing done? Mm-hmm. I've got a project that I'm trying to do that's going to take four years to do. And I just want to get it done by January, mm-hmm. this January. Yeah. And it's, it's overwhelmed me. It's taken over me. Yeah. So all day long, what am I thinking about when I'm in the shower? What am I thinking about? Right. Is how I'm going to get this done. Oh, I'm so well. And then there's all of these uh, normal barriers in life, and now all of these new barriers, yeah. which may or may not be important. You know, with all the COVID, this and that, and nine other things. And so, uh, no wonder everybody's a, an ex- anxious mess because our future is never certain and now it's it. more uncertain than ever before right you got it and and we've and we've lost some of those t- traditional coping skills like mm-hmm. going to church taking your breakfast by yourself to you know process through things watching sports interacting with playing sports mm-hmm. uh, going to the park going to weddings going to funerals like government's taken that from us yeah right. and then you do like okay, so let's go ahead and have our wedding and let's try not to tell anybody until after it's done. And then once people find out there's all this judgment that comes yep. piled on top of you and it's, it's just a horrible time that I hope that we uh, work our way through and look back on uh, with just amused curiosity that we, we all got caught up in this yeah. craze. It'll, for it'll, be, it'll be a story to tell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so as we just start wrapping up, um, again, with the Walk the Talk America, the WTTA, uh, you guys work, you guys, I say, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm a part of WTTA just because I'm such a cheerleader for uh, the incredible work that that's being done. Um, but suicide prevention measures are a big part of, of your mission. Uh, the statistics tell us that most suicides are completed with firearms. I mean, it's just one of those facts in life without judgment. It just is. Um, if someone listening right now is needing a helping hand just to get through tomorrow, but they're one of these people that, that doesn't understand the, the benefit of mental health um, counseling, or they are trying to be so strong and so self-reliant, um, what words of help or encouragement could we in this moment on this podcast on this show what could we offer them uh, first of all i really appreciate that you're um, bringing it back to the listening audience because that's why we do this and there, there might be somebody out there whose life will touch um so we want to be purposefully intentionally mindful of that with what comes out of our what comes out of our mouths right um 
So thank you for that. And if, if you are listening and you are struggling, you know you're in a dark place. The first thing I would say is stop, just pause. And Mike has tried to get a, a hashtag moving called hashtag cause a pause. Mm. Um, multiple layers on which this works. One of my favorites is that if suicide is an impulsive act, by and large, um, we know that there's from, from statistical uh, data that uh, people who self-report who've either had an attempt and survived or, um, or, or contemplated and then not followed through, the, the moment, the, the time between deciding to execute oneself and actually doing it ranges between five and 60 minutes. Mm. It's not planned over time. It's very, very impulsive. So one of the things we want to do is just create time and space between the thought and the action. Because in that time, if we get enough time, minds change. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that about 90% of people who uh, attempt and survive go on to die by other means. So only 10% of people who attempt and, and survive actually attempt again and, and succeed. So um, if you can keep somebody from dying by suicide, they will die by some other means later, like natural causes. So we need to create some space. And gun owners tend to hear that as like, <laughs> take my firearms away, <laughs> you know, like lock them up, restrict access. And it's like, no, um, but maybe. And so if we can create space, we create an opportunity for reflection on things that keep you alive. In the suicide prevention community, we call those protective factors. There's risk factors that lead to you wanting to die and then doing it. And then there's protective factors that lead to keeping you alive. Some of those protective factors are your future. Um, what does future you want to do? And what would future you say about this moment right now? Mm. If, especially if future you was removed from the future. Um, family. That's an easy one. That's low hanging fruit, right? But if you cause a pause just long enough to go, all right, my kids' faces are in my head. What would their faces look like to discover that their dad died mm. for any reason, but especially suicide? Mm -hmm. That'll keep me alive. That will keep me alive mm -hmm. for sure. Even if I don't, even if my parents are in their seventies and I don't think they'll, okay, well, okay. First of all, that's That's false too. Parents are not supposed to outlive their children. That's not the natural order of things. So your parents, if they're still around would be absolutely devastated. Your spouse, probably most of your coworkers. So when you consider these people and you go, hmm, man, I'm going to cause a lot of destruction in another, in other people's lives, possibly outstripping whatever pain I intend to solve by removing myself from my pain. That can, that can create some time. Um, so we want to pause. And some ways to do that is to, if, if your guns are in a safe like they should be, go tape a picture of your family or your kids to your safe. That's it. It's the last thing you're going to see before you actually execute the act. And if you still do it, well, there's probably not a whole lot of intervention we can do anyway. Yeah. Um, if you're struggling, though, and you're aware that you're struggling, sometimes, some ways to cause a pause is, Look at the blessings in your life. A lot of times we get so wrapped up in the worries and the fears and the concerns and the sadness and the negatives and the things we don't have and the whatever we missed out on that we forget what we have, right? And that's really easy to do for 
um, people of means in a very, very ironically, uh, people of, of high means, you know, they're wealthy, they have resources. They tend to get into this like self spiral of um, negativity a little bit easier. It's like they, they just forget um, all that they have and material possessions are one thing that's fine. But if you, if you're not attached to material possessions, look at the stuff that you have that like you've contributed to life. Mm. Uh, perhaps it's a project that you completed some impact you had on humanity, a uh, kind word that you said to somebody, all that's going to be gone. It's, I mean, it's not going to be stripped away, but you won't be able to do it again. You won't be able to impact anybody anymore. You won't be a positive force. And if you get, if you get into a suicidal spot, like you may be now, if you're listening and we're pretending that's the case um, and you take your own life, that's it. That's the end of the, that's the end of the story before the rest of the chapters have been written. Um, but if you don't, what a powerful story to tell to somebody else. Yeah, I was there. I was on that ledge and I backed off. That's encouraging, man. That's inspiring. That's, that's a reason to go continue living because you get to st- tell the story to other people about how you got to continue living. That's uplifting. That's, that's the stuff of TED Talks and documentaries. You know what I mean? Uh, that's the stuff people write books about. So I would, I would help people direct their thoughts because we have control over our thoughts to things that help keep them alive, which leads me to the, the final thing, which is uh, emotional leverage. So we've talked a lot about emotion here. I didn't go over the 10 emotions, but uh, among them are fear, which is often the root of anxiety and, um, and shame. So some people want to eliminate shame from our, from our vocabulary. And, and I'm not a big fan of that because it's got an adaptive function and its function is to tell us that we fail to meet somebody else's expectations. Meaning we cause sadness in another person. Guilt then says, go fix it, go make it right. Right. Go reconcile. If you can use the shame of letting everybody in your life down by dying early at your own hand to keep you from dying at your own by your own hand. I'm all for that because around the corner is, the guilt that says, go, go apologize for putting them, putting them through stress, putting yourself through stress. Um, and also the fear of what may happen. What's the ripple effect? We don't just affect ourselves. You throw a pebble in a pond, the ripples go out. How many more things get touched by your one act? Mm. And that can, be, that can be very scary when you start to consider the act of self-death and how many people might be affected. So I'm perfectly okay with leveraging emotion for appropriate reasons, um, because that's why we have emotions. That's why they exist in our brain. And, and if it keeps us alive to um, move forward and then have a great story to tell on the other side, then let's do it. Um, it's nothing to, be, nothing to be afraid of and uh, nothing to be intimidated by. In fact, quite the opposite, you can, it can be quite encouraging. And if you're not good at this self-forgiveness stuff, um, there's a way to, to move through that too. You can forgive yourself for, for being in this spot and all that. But um, I would just, I would just want to speak encouragement into people. It's, it's never as bleak as you think. And all things are temporary. All things, all things are all temporary. Things. Yeah. This too shall pass for yeah. sure. Wow. That was. How could we get awesome. you, how could we have like a five hour program? Because this, this is awesome stuff. It really is. Well, and plus we can go listen to Noggin Notes. Uh, so that's a good way to, to, you know, uh, benefit from all of, uh, Jake's knowledge and, and that sort of thing. So that is definitely a tool that's out there for people. 
Um, but we, we have kept you longer than I planned to. And I so appreciate uh, all that you've shared with us. Tell folks, besides listening to Noggin Notes and how they can find Noggin Notes, uh, how can they follow all the work that you're doing? Uh, all the work is, sounds a little cartoonish. Um, <laughs> but um, Noggin Notes is available anywhere. It's a little pink and green brain with a purple background. That's how you know that you found it. Um, Zephyr Wellness is on Instagram and, uh, and on Facebook. And you can follow us on there. We try to post some encouraging stuff and some you know, mindful content that's educational. Uh, we have a YouTube channel that I mentioned. Um, I'm on there. Uh, my business partner has a couple of videos about learning to be mindful and be at peace with oneself. Um, I'm trying to produce more videos, but we're a little busy. Walk the Talk America just launched a podcast. Cheryl was on it. And I am really excited because we've had, we've already recorded like 10 episodes, even though we've only released, I think four. And, um, the, the guests and the conversations have just been fabulous. So walk the talk America. And if you want to reach out to us, um, info at zephyrwellness.org is a way to get a hold of me. Um, info at wtta.org is how you can get a hold of uh, me or Mike. Uh, if you want to just reflect, you want to give us some content to consider ideas to cover in podcasts, that kind of thing. Um, the Zephyr Wellness website is zephyrwellness.org. We have uh, media and articles you can sift through on there too. Um, so yeah, that's that's how you can get in touch with me. I really appreciate the kind words uh, and the and the time because I say this as often as I can. This stuff doesn't do any good locked up in my head. It's it would be foolish to make it proprietary and try to like charge people or something because that just ends up being a barrier. So I try to share it as much as I can. You want to pay me for it? That's fine. But <laughs> um, I'm just blessed enough to have a have a salary gener generated for me by my my company. So I try to just get this out as often as possible. Well, that is a generous mindset, and I appreciate it so much um, because it this information. You know, if we don't at least start at this level to help people be able to kind of peek in from a safe place, you know, they're listening on their smartphone or on their tablet or whatever, and they're like, oh, I didn't even mean to, you know, sign into the mental health one. I just, you know, I don't even know why I'm, I'm here, but wow, I'm learning some things, you know, and, and then they go and have their conversations in their carpool and around the dinner table and and so this is a, a beautiful starting place for a lot of people that might otherwise just kind of, you know, just not even engage with something about, oh, this yeah. mumbo jumbo about feeling good, you know, mental health talk. That's way too fuzzy and squishy for me. So um, thank you for that, Jake. Thank you so much. And uh, appreciate all that you do. The uh, Walk the Talk America is so important. Uh, I love that you've put so much energy into that. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on again as often as you can make time. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. You guys are so welcome. Thank you for having me. It means a lot. And, um, you know, as I say in closing my other podcast, we wish you great mental wellness. And we do. We, we want you to be mentally well. Um, our neighbors rely on it. Our communities rely on it. Um, you know, I don't want to see couples <clears throat> fighting in the line at the grocery store. I don't want to see my kid bullied on the playground. Um, so if I can work myself out of a job, uh, I'd be happy to do it because everybody around me will be healthy. I love it. Awesome. All right. Jake Wischerson. 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 Dang it. I'm getting better though, I think. <laughs> Wischerson. Thanks, Thanks Jake. Jake. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye -bye. Listening to Jake today, there's so much. 
that I've learned from that and realize that, yeah, maybe I could use a little help. Oh, we all can. Right. And I think that that's, you know, I mean, I've studied it. I love it. It's my thing. And so for me, well, duh, of course, I'm going to want to have these conversations. Right. But for, you know, for somebody like you, you're kind of like, well, you know, I appreciate that, that that's one of your passions, Cheryl, but it's just not really something yeah, you've embraced. I can fix it myself. Yeah. I love that uh, to have your voice in this conversation. It's so important because, you know, probably a large portion of the listening audience is probably like, yeah, what Dan said. The thing <laughs> is what that, Dan you know, said. It, the thing is that I can still fix it myself. Well, Everything it is fixing but, it yourself by getting help. But you got to right? look at it. You got to look at it like this. I can fix it myself, but I still need a tool to do it. Yeah. I need the pair of pliers. I need the screwdriver. I need the assistance of somebody, a friend or mental help. Yeah. You know, and do you so, forge your own wrench or do you go no. to the local Home Depot right. or so, Lowe's or whatnot and, and buy? So you've got to look just, at it that you, yeah. are con you are in control of your life. You're going to fix it, yeah. but you're getting guidance. And I've seen it yeah. and I've seen what you've gone through. And you know, one of the strangest things when I, I see that people that do mental health psychologists, mm -hmm. They go to psychologists. We sure do. And that's, that's <laughs> amazing we, to me that, we value that, you know, you used to think, oh, this, the almighty wise guy or woman, and you find out, no, they, they have issues, they have things, but they get help in their needs. You get help in your needs because everybody's got different problems, but they all are in a way kind of relate and you just need somebody with experience. For sure. So anyway, sure Jake. Thank you again for being on the show today. And I really want to thank all the listeners. Mm -hmm. We couldn't be here without you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for that. Absolutely. And uh, until next time, pray for our nation. And pray for our leaders. All of them, Dan? Every single, every bit of them. Even everyone. the ones you don't like. Even the ones I don't like. Especially the ones you don't well, like. You are really, you know what? Yeah, let's do that. I love it. All right. Be good to each other. Have a great week. And God bless. Bye-bye.